hear now these words from the book of Genesis, and may the Spirit work through those words to teach us wisdom and the way. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. And then she ceased bearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dear God, as we gather here today, may the words of my mouth, the thoughts and meditations and prayers and hopes and dreams and fears and emotions of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight and build thy people up. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Going back to June, as we entered one of the hottest summers on record, I began a series of sermons that delve into some of the people we meet in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We spend time with Abraham and Sarah, with Isaac and Rebekah, with Jacob and Rachel. We conclude the series today by remembering Leah. Leah is the firstborn daughter of Laban. But the second choice wife of Laban's nephew, Jacob, standing in line in preference behind her younger sister, whom Jacob loves at first sight. Out of commitment to the Jewish tradition that the firstborn shall marry before the latter born, Laban, the father of both Rachel and Leah, slips Leah into the marital bed intended for Jacob and Rachel on the night of their wedding, binding Jacob to Leah as well as to Rachel. The next morning, Jacob forges an agreement where in addition to the seven years he has already worked for Rachel's hand, he can serve Laban seven more years and enter immediately a family structure that includes both Rachel and Leah as wives. I am not sure that this is a place where the Bible is saying, go therefore and do likewise. (laughs) But as heir to the promise of land, descendants, and blessing given to Jacob's grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, Jacob leaves no stone unturned in his commitment to produce the descendants part of that blessing. 
of that promise, particularly in light of how difficult it has been for his grandparents Abraham and Sarah and his parents Isaac and Rebekah to bring forth heirs. Jacob himself fathers a total of 12 sons and one daughter by his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and their respective maids, Bilhah and Zilpah. But such fertility is not without its marks of tragedy and pain. Rachel herself was barren for many years and was only able to bear a child later in her life after Jacob had fathered two children by her maid Bilhah and several through Leah and her maid. Yet in giving birth to the second of these children, Benjamin, Rachel dies in childbirth, leaving Jacob without the wife he truly loves and with two of twelve sons, Joseph and Benjamin, who were special to him because of his love for their late mother, a love which proves stronger than death. Both Rachel and Leah are vaulted in the memory of the Jewish people as being mothers of the twelve tribes of Israel, that period in which the promise of descendants was finally fulfilled in abundance. An early, an early Jewish scholar wrote, Joyfully, Laban had two daughters who were, so to speak, like two joists reaching out from one end of the earth to the other. One produced generals and the other produced generals. One produced kings and the other produced kings. Out of one arose lion slayers. Out of the other arose lion slayers. Out of one arose prophets, and out of the other arose prophets. Out of one arose judges, and out of the other arose judges. Out of one arose conquerors of countries, and out of the other arose conquerors of countries. Out of one arose appointers of allotted parts in lands, and out of the other arose appointers in the allotted parts in lands. Apart from these affirmative associations of both Rachel and Leah together, Rachel is the more remembered of the two. For after her own death in childbirth, she is vaulted in Israel for refusing to be consoled over the death of her children, the later generation of Israelites. And she is remembered for her cry throughout the centuries whenever children are endangered, such as the period of exile nearly a thousand years later when Jeremiah depicts the people of Israel being carried off into exile and led away. And when Joseph and Mary take their infant Jesus into Egypt to avoid the infanticidal decree of Herod. In both these periods, the Bible remembers Jeremiah saying about Rachel, a voice was heard in Ramah wailing and loud lamentation, 
Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. The Rachel is better known and more deeply remembered than Leah. It is Leah and her maid Zilpah who give birth to the greater number of the tribes of Israel. Leah is the mother of the tribes of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gad, and Asher, eight of the twelve, as well as to the mother of Dinah, Jacob's only daughter. Through Through Levi, Leah becomes the mother of the priestly line, which includes Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Through Judah, Leah becomes the mother of the line of kings, including David and Solomon and Uzziah and Hezekiah and Josiah. And ultimately, through Leah, Joseph, the father of Jesus, is descended. In focusing on these two women this week, it occurs to me that as each woman finds and claims her calling, there is a measure of refusal involved. A humanly instinctive no that paves the way for a divinely appointed yes. In Rachel, the refusal is explicit. Following her own death in childbirth, as she rises in the memory of Israel, she refuses to look out and accept as final The deaths of all the children that come after her. Her wailing thus echoes throughout the centuries. For children lost. For children stillborn. For children who die prematurely. For children who are orphaned. For children who are kidnapped. For children who are abused. For children who are killed. Rachel's tomb remains in place where for centuries adults and children being carried off into exile pass by and draw comfort from her tears of consolation and strength from her promise of return. In her pain, in her tragedy, in her death, in her refusal, Rachel gives birth to even the faintest glimmers of hope. I imagine that children and parents in Israel today are hearing Rachel's cry anew and are straining to believe the promises attached to it. And her cry is not limited to the children of Israel. Every child victimized by war and terrorism is a child of Rachel. Rachel's refusing to be consoled is not simply a matter of anger or bitterness. It is heroic and it is hopeful. Rachel gives up on no child throughout the generations of history. This is what Rachel does. This is what Rachel stands for. This is why Rachel is remembered. And as the world faces the sheer number of likely 
deaths in the upcoming days in Israel and Gaza, we will once again hear Rachel's voice weeping for her children, refusing to be consoled, and we will hope and pray and seek to do everything that no child is lost. With Leah comes a different kind of refusal. A refusal that develops over time as we see her. The earliest rabbis who studied Leah's story sensed the element of refusal in a line describing of all things Leah's eyes. Now follow me along here. In our translation of Genesis 29:17, the narrator says, "Leah's eyes were lovely, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful." The translation note in the Bible in your pews, if you want to get out and look at it and practice your squinting, the translation note says, the meaning of the Hebrew, relative to the word lovely, the meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain. You bet it is. The Revised Standard Version through which I learned this story said Leah's eyes were weak. And we always had an image of Leah walking around rejected because she wasn't as pretty and she wore really thick glasses and nobody would pay attention to her. Leah's eyes were weak. These are the horrible things we were taught in Sunday school to make it come alive, you know? Anyway, King James says that Leah's, Leah was tender-eyed. Now, an early Jewish scholar read the description of Leah's eyes and his focus was on that they were weak or tender. And it's remarkable. Listen to what he said centuries ago. The fact that Leah's eyes are weak was no disgrace to her. For at the crossroads in the marketplace, she used to hear people say, Rebecca has two sons and Laban has two daughters. The older daughter should marry the older son. The younger daughter should marry the younger son. So Leah would then ask all the passersby, the older one, Esau, what kind of person is he? And she was told, a cunning hunter, a wicked man given to robbing people. And the younger Jacob, what kind of person is he, she would ask. A quiet man, dwelling in tents. So faced with the prospect of a traditional socially sanctioned marriage to Esau, Leah wept so much that her eyelids seemed to disappear. One scholar even said, That they just fell off. Wow. (laughs) But they became soft and weak. But this early rabbi then surmises that Leah likely played a role with her father Laban 
in placing herself in the marital bed. So that she, like her sister, might be linked to the more morally sound Jacob rather than to Esau. Like Jacob refusing to be consoled for, like Rachel refusing to be consoled for her children, Leah refuses to accept the tradition that the older shall marry the older. She refuses to be linked to the more violent of the two brothers. Her refusal leads her to marry the man she prefers and to become mother of the eight of the twelve tribes of Israel. Her refusal helps her claim and live into the role that she has accepted as mother of Israel. Her refusal is an expression of her agency, her choice, her volition in a time and place where such expression among women was hard to come by. That is how the early Jewish community read Leah's story, all based on her eyes. Now, development of agency on Leah's part occurs even more spiritually when she finds herself fertile and yet hopes that her ability to bear children will win Jacob's heart. And this is the passage we read. In fact, when Leah's first three children are born, she names each of them after her desire to please Jacob. She names her first child Reuben, which means see, because she says, The Lord has seen my affliction, and surely now my husband will love me. She names the second child Simeon, which means hear, and says, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she names the third child Levi, which means to join, and says, Now this time my husband will be joined to me. But after naming three sons for her desire to win her husband's affection, she gives birth to a fourth child, and she names him Judah, which means praise. And she says, this time, with this pregnancy, with this birth, with this child, I myself will praise the Lord. Leah has moved from wanting to please the man to whom she is lawfully married by bearing child after child after child to bearing a child out of her sense of praise to God. Out of a sense that both the child and God's choice that she should bear it are indeed gifts to her from God. Not a role that society defines for her, but a role from God. And of her own volition, Leah claims that gift and praises God for the child. Many of you know that last Saturday, 
Even as the news of death of children in Israel hung in the air like the intermittent morning rain. I was preparing to conduct in the, Blum, in the Blomberg courtyard the marriage of my 35-year-old stepdaughter, Hannah, to Brendan Haley, with whom she has been in a deep and loving relationship for eight years. Seventeen years ago, I married Hannah's mother, Maggie. And from the position of spouse, I have watched over that time Maggie and Hannah and her two brothers, Ben and Daniel, work to rebuild a family through many dangers, snoils, and toils and with a thousand miles of difference between them, a rebuilding that is often necessary after divorce. Ten years ago, Hannah came to live with us after a severe breakdown in her last year of college. The two years she spent in our home and the mother-daughter bond that she and Maggie were able to form and reform set Hannah on a path of healing that she has shared frequently and openly on social media. So I'm giving away no secrets. I had been asked to conduct the wedding, which was both a terrific honor, and it gave me what we in this business always cherish, the best seat in the house. The day around noon turned beautiful, just like today. The rain turned to sunshine and cool. The courtyard was arrayed with beautiful flowers. Church staff and volunteers had worked together to figure out how to prepare the courtyard for the first large wedding that it has ever housed. The 140 people present from the two large families of the bride and groom exuded joy. It's fair to say that everyone, everyone was on their best behavior. And it was wonderful. The sight that most moved me was not the bride coming down the aisle, even though she has long since ceased to be a stepdaughter to me and is in everything but name and law my daughter. What moved me was seeing the face of the mother of the bride my wife. When first her nieces came down the aisle as junior bridesmaids, I told you it was a big wedding. Then her three grandchildren as flower girl and ring bearers. And then her daughter as bride. Mature, beautiful, smiling, calm, self-assured, and savvy enough to flash me a look of humor which helped me not to break down as much as my, I might otherwise have done. In walking down the aisle, Hannah was a fully formed adult as healed as any of us ever becomes. Yet it was the sight 
of Maggie's face. Seeing niece and niece, granddaughter and grandson, son and son escorting daughter. That was as fulfilled as the face of any parent can be. That is the sight that I want to remain in front of me until the day I am taken from this earth. It was a face of gratitude for the role of a mother chosen, given by God, assented to, and fulfilled. We remember Leah because she lived into her role as a mother and because through her own agency and volition she came to praise God in and through that role. This time I will praise the Lord, Leah said. This time I will praise the Lord. Amen.